0: And we're going to shift gears a little bit now and talk about the average that the Canadian family spends when it comes to taxes. And the Fraser Institute has crunched the numbers for 2018. They have come up with a number saying that more than 44% of household income goes to taxes. So let's bring in Finn Poshman, a resident scholar at the Fraser Institute, to, to talk a bit more about this. Finn, good morning to you.
1: Jill, good to talk to you. Uh,
0: How do you crunch or the numbers, or how do you uh, compile everything uh, to get this report to come up with that number of more than forty four percent?
1: Well, first uh, we sum up the sources of income. Uh, So that's uh, cash income, other benefits, uh, mostly uh, mostly your employment earnings. Uh, These are all uh, derived from Statistics Canada surveys. And uh, the, uh, the the top-line number you, you mentioned, uh, look at it this way. The average representative family last year earned about $89,000 all in. And for that same family, the same representative family, the uh, total tax bill uh it was about $39,000 and that comes to about uh, 44%. So the the starting place is you know what's taxes as a share of income and it adds up to a pretty big number and that's that's part of the key story here is, is getting across to folks just how much that is.
0: Uh, it is a huge number when you think about it, and uh, people work hard for their money and uh, and do that for a reason. Uh, one of the the issues that that tends to come up with this, or one of the questions that tends to come up when the when the Fraser Institute puts out the numbers, is that you also include uh, the number uh, the corporate tax, or you include taxes that would be passed on to uh, individuals and passed on to families, right?
1: Well, that's right. A significant portion of that is uh, is passed on, and uh, you, you really just have to uh, when you're assessing the tax bill, uh, because uh, there's uh, there are only so many sources available for uh, paying the tax that you assign to corporations through the federal and provincial corporate income tax. So uh, it's either paid by shareholders. In other words, uh, we pay it out of our earnings on um, RSPs uh, and investment accounts. Uh, we pay for it in, uh, in higher prices. In other words, the, the price of tax just flows through to goods and services. Um, or it, uh, it comes through in lower wages. So it's, uh, the, the corporate tax uh, lowers, uh, lowers our wages as well. And which it is and what proportion depends on exactly which, which tax and what business you're
0: talking about. Right, because even when we see small fluctuations, say, in the price of gas, uh, things that are delivered, things uh, that arrive and, and are delivered by truck, which is the vast majority of things, uh, I mean, you can ask the Trucking Association, you can ask anybody that does it, and they say, yeah, we pass on the surcharge. It's not, it's not the companies that are picking up that increase, it's uh, the consumer.
1: Well, that's right. It's it's a competitive market, uh, in, uh, so the taxes that are applied to um, all fuels are automatically going to be passed on, and most of the fluctuations is uh, to do with uh, supply and demand issues.
0: Uh, You make the comparison in the report as well and in this research that when you combine all of the taxes and including uh, the corporate taxes that are passed on uh, to Canadian families, uh, Canadian families end up spending more on taxes than they do on uh, other necessities of life. Things like housing, food, things that everybody needs. What does that tell us?
1: Well, the the first, gel is... uh I find it perennially surprising. You know how you can not uh, be surprised every year by the same thing? But for, uh, for quite a while now, uh, you sum up all the taxes, We like, percent of income. Add food, shelter, and clothing expenditure for uh, for a typical family, uh, that's only 36% of the household income. So, yeah, we, we're, we pay more in taxes than basic necessities. There's a couple of things going on there. Uh, one you know, over over the past gener- couple of generations, government's gone a lot bigger. It does more than it used to do, which uh, which might be fine for uh, for a lot of us when we do get services for it. So that's you know so far so good. Uh, but the price of uh, food, uh, food, and clothing. Uh, the market and, and competition really brought down the cost of those things relative to income over the years. In other words, on average, we're, we're richer than we were at higher incomes than we do, uh, did uh, a couple of generations ago. Uh, but a lot of it has been uh, soaked up in the, in the growth of government.
0: Oh, and, and what do you say? Because I know every time we talk about these numbers and the new numbers are released as well, uh, there are people that would say, yes, we do pay a lot. We know we pay a lot of taxes in Canada, but uh, we get a lot in return, whether it's health care, whether it's roads, bridges, infrastructure and things that everybody needs. And
1: and I, that's that's not only a, a fair point; it's an important part of the story because uh, this is uh, it's very much in the eye of the beholder. Uh, so as I said, you know the government has grown over a couple of generations. It uh, it takes up more of our income than it used to do, and we also get a lot more. And whether you're getting uh, good value for money or whether you're uh, okay with the trade-off. Is a choice that, uh, or, or judgment that each of us makes, and so we may come to different ones. But you can't make a decent judgment if you're not looking at the numbers.
0: Right. So how do you measure that, or, or do you think people should measure that if you're looking at your taxes? How do you actually figure out if you're getting good bang for your buck?
1: Oh, it's not easy because uh, every household is uh, different. For instance, uh, if you're a middle-income family uh, with young children, uh, you're getting a significant uh, federal, in some cases, uh, child benefit uh, check uh, on a regular basis, and that's that's really valuable to you. Uh, If you don't have kids, if you don't use our uh, airports, if you're not a senior citizen, Uh, you're not getting a lot of benefits from federal spending, so you're going to come to kind of a different assessment. But it's very dependent on the family and looking around and figuring out and understanding what it is that your federal government does, what it is your provincial government does, and uh, what your municipal governments do. But on the spending side, the benefit side, uh, that's a different study. You'll have to wait for it.
0: (laughs) All right, we will, uh, for sure. Uh, We will leave it there. Finn, thank you so much for your time today, and have a great rest of your weekend.
1: Uh, Thanks, Jill. Always good to talk
0: to you. All right. That is Finn Poshman, a resident scholar at the Fraser Institute, taking a look at the latest numbers on taxes and how much we spend in Canada. Uh, The finding there, the average Canadian family spent more than 44% of its income on the various taxes in 2018, more than what the average Canadian family spends on basic necessities. Uh, Your take on that, do you feel like you are taxed more? Do you spend more in taxes? On uh, rather than compared to basic necessities? And if so, do you think you're getting good value for your dollars? Maybe, as Finn said, if you have the child tax benefit and you have all of the other benefits and such. Do you feel like, yeah, we pay a lot in taxes, but we also get a lot in return? Or do you think the Canadians are overtaxed? Let me know on the Buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ or you can email me jbennett at cknw.com. Well, thanks for joining us this morning. We're going to talk a little bit about fertility and how things have changed over the years, whether it's the science, how procedures are conducted, and the options out there for people. And joining me on the line now is Dr. Beth Taylor, an infertility and egg freezing specialist, also a co-founder and co-director at the Olive Fertility Center. Dr. Taylor, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, We're talking about this and also uh, kind of tying this into the fact that it is Pride Weekend and uh, there is, I can imagine, a growing number of people in the LGBTQ community who are also using uh, services of fertility clinics and uh, going through that whole process. So so we'll get to that in a second. But first, uh, can you talk a little bit about how the demand has changed or how uh, the whole industry has kind of changed over the years? Yes, there's
2: been a real explosion in the desire to seek fertility treatment and it's driven by lots of things um a small part by the lgbtq community and and a large part by women simply waiting longer to try to get pregnant and so that often those women will need a little bit of extra help so so we're seeing a real boom um for those two reasons and a few others yeah it's really kind of exploding the, the the desire for people to be seen and helped by fertility treatments
0: And when we talk about the LGBTQ community, uh, I would imagine, I mean, just based on biology itself, there would be more challenges and that you're not having people in a lot of cases that are coming in with, okay, you've got what we need, you've got what we need, we need to find a way to put this together and make it work. You have some other challenges there.
2: That's right. In most instances, members of the LGBTQ community need something they need eggs they need sperm or they need a uterus or or more than one of those things that's right
0: and so how do you even go about starting uh, the 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 discussion and starting the plan on on what it's going to take then to get to somebody because of, uh, making the assumption they've come to you because they want to, to grow their family
2: that's right so for example if we take a, a lesbian couple they would typically need sperm um and they can bring someone they know um in as a sperm source, or more commonly, they'll purchase sperm from a bank. And then if we take the example of a gay male couple, those people need a uterus, so they'll typically need a surrogate, and then they'll also need a source of eggs, so they'll they'll get an egg donor, again, someone they know, or someone from a bank.
0: And in Canada, it's different. Uh, I've had friends I know that have gone to the States and gone down that route because of some of the challenges when it's uh, in Canada. But how is it as far as accessing, whether it's a gay couple or lesbian couple, accessing uh, those things that they need?
2: Yes, I think there's a bit of a myth out there because the rules um, have historically been kind of prohibitive in Canada, but those rules have, have loosened up and changed a lot now. And Really, there's no restriction to any part of that egg, sperm, surrogacy in Canada. There's rules, of course, we follow, but those those opportunities are there. And there was over 700 surrogacy births last year in Canada, and thousands of egg donations and sperm and sperm donors being used in Canada. So no, it's really opened up in Canada, particularly over the last sort of five, six years. So with people, there's really, in my mind, no need to go to the U.S. In fact, it's typically cheaper, and a lot of the healthcare costs are covered if they stay in Canada.
0: Okay, so and so staying in Canada, then. So and the, but the rules are, I suppose that you can donate those things, but the rule is still in place, isn't it? That, that's not you can't make money off of it.
2: That's right. You can't you can't profit from it. So, um, what a lot of people do then is we we ship in sperm and eggs from Canada. So the the couple or the individual needing an egg or a sperm doesn't leave Canada, but we ship them in from the U.S. if they're not available in Canada.
0: And you mentioned surrogacy because I would just think anecdotally that if you have a lesbian couple and what you're needing is sperm and one of one of the couple, one of the women has decided they're going to carry uh, the baby, it seems like that would make things a lot easier than a gay couple, say, then needing to go that extra step and find a woman who is going to be the surrogate and going to be the carrier.
2: That's right. It is easier because a lesbian couple will bring two two things to the table. They'll typically bring eggs and a uterus, whereas um, gay male couples will bring the sperm. So they need two things. So it is it is, it is harder. The, the hurdles are higher, but they're not insurmountable. Insurmountable, but uh, there are more barriers and hurdles for gay males. It's just they need more things to help.
0: And are you seeing an increase? I know in general you're seeing an increase in people seeking help from the clinic and and uh, services from the clinic, but particularly in the in the LGBTQ community, are you seeing an increase in in people?
2: We are. Um, we're seeing it in uh, lesbian couples, gay males, and also trans um, patients coming in to uh, preserve their fertility in advance of transitioning. We're seeing that's another group that's really seeing more and more of.
0: Well, that's an interesting. I hadn't even thought of that, that one as well. And that's, I would imagine, a certain amount of planning going if you know you're going to be, you're, you're a trans, either trans woman or trans man, knowing that down the road, uh, you might want to start a family or, or change or, or, or have that option, then if you haven't taken this step, I would imagine it would be much more difficult. Well,
2: that's right. So it's better to to come in in advance. Now, some people can be partway through transitioning and still still be able to freeze eggs or sperm in advance. But uh, a lot of them, you know, are coming in a bit earlier and earlier. I think that's the trend we're seeing.
0: Uh, And you talked about egg freezing, and I know that you're a specialist in that field. That seems like a field when it comes to infertility that has had huge... Updates and and huge uh, increases in in viability or in success rates compared to not really that long ago.
2: Yes, we changed the way eggs are frozen about well nearly a decade ago now, but really widely implemented about five six years ago. So, um, so as a result, we do we, we are better at it now. We're still not perfect at it, so we always. Have the caveat when it comes to egg freezing—you spend a lot of money and not have a baby at the other end. But it does give you a like a, a higher chance of having a baby if you freeze eggs now than if you try try later on in life to get pregnant.
0: And and what age do you suggest to people if people are considering that that they should freeze the eggs?
2: The sooner the later, the sooner the better. Uh, not to be glib, but
0: um, definitely under forty and really before
2: thirty five is best.
0: All right. And how long do they last once if a couple has decided or a single woman has decided that that's uh, the route that she's taking? Can you can you freeze them? Uh, Obviously, your age then comes into play down the road. But is there a time limit on how long you can keep them?
2: No, there isn't. Um, It's like sperm and embryos as well. Once they're frozen down in liquid nitrogen, they can seem to stay there for years and years without any harm to the, the pregnancy rates at the time that they're thawed.
0: Okay. And what happens to them then if people say people do that, they freeze the eggs or they freeze the embryos, say they have a child or situations change and they no longer want that? Do they just stay inevitably or what happens to them at that point?
2: Yeah, there's a few options. You can donate them to other people. You can just keep them frozen and not decide, or you can ask us to discard them um your choice. There's your
0: property to pick from. Okay. Um, and, and talking about this um, kind of branching out or making it so services are available to, to more and more people, uh, do you see that there's been or have, was there perhaps in the past a bit of a stigma attached to it or, or people that were perhaps hesitant to get involved in fertility treatments and to go down that route? Or are we seeing that kind of lift?
2: To some extent. I think there's still a bit of taboo around fertility and people not acknowledging that they're seeking treatment and having to hide it from their friends and family and employers. So, no, I think it's, it is better, but there's still a long way to go. People are still kind of embarrassed or feel broken by being infertile.
0: Which is unfortunate when you talk about, when we talk about it, even you and I having this conversation now, my guess is there are people listening who who have dealt with infertility. It seems like it's one of those things, much like miscarriage too, that happens so much, but for some reason people feel that they can't talk about it
2: so true it is very much like miscarriage people it's so yeah people it's so so seems so so private and yet in my experience when people when patients do start to talk about it with their friends they tell me what a release it was because often then their friends will disclose that they too had issues and things like that so it's it, I think once people start talking there's there's only a, a benefit to them
0: and and do you find too, is it, is it the fear of people, because like you said, in a lot of cases, it's uh, n- not only that you might be a, a couple, a, a gay couple or lesbian couple that, that need the help of a clinic, but in a lot of cases, it's people who have waited until later in life. Is there that fear that, that people kind of will look down on you in that, well, you couldn't do this naturally because you waited. It was kind of your fault. What do you, What are you doing uh, having a baby at this late age? Or there's that, that, that fear that people won't be accepting of it?
2: I think that there's a lot of stigma, right? Everyone's supposed to have spent the first 10 years of the reproductive life not getting pregnant and the next 10 years getting pregnant. And, and that's a lot of pressure on people, especially in today's day and age when there's you know careers and financial factors. There's lots of issues to consider. So people are doing their best out there, and they don't, need, they don't need judgment or a harsh eye because they waited to try to get pregnant.
0: <laughs> Indeed. Um, so if people are listening to this, so say somebody is listening to this and they've considered it, they've maybe been hesitant, what is the first step? Because I think that might also be a bit of a deterrent, people thinking it's intrusive and not knowing how much information they need to bring or give up. But what is the first step that you tell uh, people who perhaps are struggling and want to start a family? What is the first thing they need to do?
2: Most people will go see their family doctor if they have one, or they'll contact us directly, just by calling us, or there's an email, and they'll just email the fertility clinic directly, and try to sort of, and we'll guide you from there. So that's, you know, if you don't have a family doctor, you're you're worried about going to your family doctor. You can contact us directly, and then we'll guide you. And oftentimes we'll tell people to go back to their family doctor, but ultimately we'll help you figure out a pathway to come in and see us and get help.
0: All right. Well, very uh, good advice and timely, uh, given that, that it is Pride Weekend, and that is a big part of uh, the community that is uh, serviced by clinics, and that is becoming more and more, um, uh, more and more a part of this. Uh, Dr. Taylor, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me. Well, if you have a pet, you know that that pet is very much a part of your family, depending. doesn't matter. Is it a dog, cat, fish, what have you? What about aging with pets? Well, my next guest has done some research on that. And Lisa Carver joins me on the line, a postdoctoral fellow at the Queen's University and Aging and Communication and Technologies at Queen's University in Ontario. Uh, Lisa, thank you so much for being with us today.
3: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: I love that uh, you were researching this and taking a look at uh, specifically uh, aging with pets and the benefits and some of the challenges with that. So what exactly were you looking at?
3: Well, what I was doing was I was working, I was actually working on, okay, back up. Um, As you know, I'm really interested in the human-animal bond. And this particular situation, we actually were successful in... um, in getting the job to write a report for the federal government on seniors aging in place in, um, in community. And um, when I was researching that report, I realized something I hadn't stumbled on in my other research. There were no supports available for older adults aging at home with their pets. So, you know, people who might be low income, they're on, you know, a pension and their cat or dog suddenly needs a surgery, there's there's nothing they can do to provide that surgery. So they either have to euthanize their pet or surrender it to a local shelter and hope that they'll take care of it. And um, that seemed to me to be really, you know, counterproductive given that we know that there's a whole bunch of really healthy, positive health effects of living with pets. So, in fact, we're sort of... Something that that makes people healthier, we're we're not supporting
0: that. It is something that you don't really think about if you're if you're younger and you have a pet, and maybe you have pet insurance, or you you have that fund that if your pet needs something. Uh, but you're right. I would imagine too that seniors would be would be stressed out in that scenario.
3: Absolutely, and and for some of them, they just there just is no um, wiggle room in the budget. You know, there's there's no extra money to do anything for their pets. I mean, they can they can support them. I'm sorry if you hear my dog barking in the background, <laughs> That's by okay. the way. They're angry because they're not sitting beside me right ah, now. Ah, okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so they, they might be able to take care of them, do shots, feed them, but when those things come up that you just can't really plan for, like, you know, an illness for the animal, suddenly they're in a position where this beloved family member has to be removed from them, you know, one way or the other, and they have to make heartbreaking decisions. And in fact, when we think about it, you know, financially speaking, it's actually a lot cheaper if we were to be able to support that older adult to keep their pet than to have it go into the shelter system. And then the shelter, if it doesn't euthanize the animal, pays for the medication, whatever it needs, and then has to find a new home. Whereas if we just had a way to support people to keep their own animals at home, we'd actually take a tremendous burden off the shelters as well.
0: And it would also, looking at your research too, it would also not only would it be that financial gain or, or less of the burden, but it also, like you said, there's, there are benefits, health benefits for people with their pets that would also come with pets being able to stay at home with them.
3: Absolutely. Like we would actually save the, the medical system, a tremendous amount of money because, you know, we know, like there's decades of research. This is not a new field. There's literally 30, 40, 50 years of research that shows that living with pets that we love, so they have to be pets in the home that we have an affectionate relationship with. So it doesn't work as well if you keep a dog chained to a, a, you know, house in the backyard. You're not going to get the same health effects. But when we have a loving relationship with a pet, we actually have less cardiovascular disease we have lower blood pressure lower ch- cholesterol we there's research studies have found that people have better health and they don't go to the doctor as much like it's a real savings on the system if we just help people to stay together with their own animals and some people will say well you know if somebody then has to go like a nursing home and the nursing home has a cat then they'll be fine. But it's not the same as when you have a loving relationship with your own animal. It's like saying you don't need... I mean, I'm not saying that children and pets are the same, but it's like saying, you know, that particular child of yours, you don't need to have... We'll just let you visit a daycare every once in a while and you'll be fine.
0: Yeah, which people would say, absolutely, that's that's ridiculous.
3: Exactly. Uh, And I'm not trying to say that pets and humans are the same. I'm just saying that there is a deep emotional bond that people have and, it, in fact, quite often it gives people, you know, meaning. Like if you've gotten to the point where you've lost, your, say, your spouse and you're living alone and you have an animal that you can take care of and, you know, if it's a dog, you actually get out and walk it. But even if it's a cat, it, it's something that you actually have a meaningful relationship. It can really help with mental health. It can help stave off depression. And, you know, it, it makes people feel better in a lot of situations. Not everyone obviously
0: right uh, you mentioned uh, care homes or long-term care because that's also got to be a source of stress if somebody gets to the point where they're they're moving into one of these homes because I would imagine a lot of them don't allow pets
3: that's right there are some who that are making the adjustment to allow a person to bring a pet of course it has to be a, a certain you know it has to be a pet that's friendly with other pets and people you know there's uh, qualifications are uh, you know associated with which pets can go in but some are trying to make the adjustment but we also know that research has shown that people in fact their first choice is to age in place in their own homes so most people not all but most people want to stay in their home whether it's an apartment or a house or or whatever they don't want to go to a group housing facility and so you know part of that is keeping their pet but part of it is keeping their autonomy and so given that, that we know that people want to stay at home, and we in fact have a lot of programs in place to help people stay at home, it seems to me to be a very small tweak of those programs to, you know, if you're giving people money to mow their lawn or to paint their house, why can't we give them a little extra money to clean up Fido's little droppings in the backyard or, or to help? you know, if you're giving them transportation to go to doctor's appointments, can we give them transportation to go to a veterinary appointment in the same programs? So we're not even reinventing the wheel. We're just adding a little enrichment.
0: Uh, And you also touched on, and I think this is something we probably don't think about a whole lot, is as we get these hot summers and heat waves, and uh, thankfully it's been a relatively uh, non-eventful summer here uh, when it comes to forest fires, but we have certainly in the past had times when the smoke has made it difficult for people to breathe, and stuff. going to cooling centers and going to places to stay uh, safe and to stay healthy, uh, somebody with a pet would be reluctant or even perhaps in some cases not able to do that.
3: Absolutely. There, there, again, there's research, that documents that, faced with the option of abandoning your pet to possible death, especially in the case of something like a forest fire where you know that it's going to be a traumatic death, um, but even, you know, in flooding and, um, and in heat situations, people are just not willing to abandon their pets. So they'll either stay with them or they'll try to leave on their own with them and it can become extremely dangerous. So, again, if we look at, you know, in the face of climate change, we need to add into, you know, our evacuation plans. How do we evacuate people with their pets? Because we've certainly found that in some um, in some climate crises, like the, the fire at Fort McMurray, um, animals were evacuated separately from their owners, and they weren't always able to reunite them. So, you know, that's a, that's an added trauma. So not only did you lose your home, you've lost your animal, you don't know whether it died in the fire or whether it's gone to a shelter and was never able to be reunited with you. So we need to look at evacuation plans that say to people, we're going to get you out and we're going to get your pet out and you can go to a place where you will be safe there and find ways to deal not just with the, the friendly dogs that are so cute and love everyone, but we need to also manage, like, what do we do with the pot pigs? What do we do with the dogs that aren't socialized to be with other dogs? Like we need to because those people may not leave their homes if they have to leave their beloved but not particularly friendly with strangers animals.
0: Yeah, so so looking at all of these different areas and things that you've researched, what would you say then is the number 1 uh, issue that you would like to see addressed or or would help uh, to address?
3: I think that we need to consider the bond between humans and animals. As a priority in our in our community support fun- funding, so we need to basically build that into our programs. When we're thinking about how do we support older adults aging in place, we need to think about and if they have beloved companion animals, how do we support that as well? Because it will result in savings in our healthcare system, in our in our shelter systems for animals. Like, It's going to help us fiscally, and it's going to help people's mental health and physical health, as well as the well-being of their animals.
0: All right. We will leave it there. Uh, Lisa Carver, very interesting uh, research. Thank you so much for sharing it with us today. Thank you, Jill. All right, Lisa Carver, a postdoctoral fellow, uh, also adjunct assistant professor, Queen's University, uh, on the line with us from uh, Ontario. All right, this is something we've talked about on the program in the past. Last time we were talking with anglers, uh, concerned about the continued regulation for recreational anglers, and the call to at least be allowed to retain hatchery salmon. We also spoke to the federal fisheries minister. Uh, He made no promises, no guarantees, and actually said there was no issue with gill nets, with nets on the Fraser River uh, taking Chinook, which the anglers took big issue with. Well, now we're going to talk about that again, see where things stand right now, and also find out why some anglers are concerned and upset by the actions of a couple pretty high-profile members of the David Suzuki Foundation. Well, let's bring in Dave Brown. He joins us on the line now. He is a recreational angler, also the chair of the Squamish-Tillillewit Sport Fish Advisory Committee. Dave, thanks so much for being with us.
4: Hi, Joe. How are you this morning?
0: Uh, very well. How about you?
4: I'm good, thanks. Thanks for uh, inviting me on the show. Um, What I wanted to bring to your listeners' attention um, is specifically the hypocritical actions of David Suzuki and the CEO of the Suzuki Foundation, Steve Cornish, uh, who recently took a fishing trip on July 1st to 4th, 2019, to the Outpost, which is a fishing lodge in Haida Gwaii. Uh, This lodge is one of the most famous lodges for some of the best Chinook fishing in the world. And... um, just prior to the recreational anglers having an opportunity in the South Coast um, to start fishing for Chinook salmon, being able to retain one Chinook salmon in many areas close to Vancouver, uh, the Suzuki Foundation released um, a article saying, for orcas' sake, don't hook a Chinook this summer article. Um, so, you know, as a recreational angler and, and conservationist, um, it's interesting. You know, it's incredibly frustrating, and, and it makes many of us furious about the double standards of this organization and failing to act in the best interest of all Canadians and Chinook salmon. Um, you know, the, the the trip up there, I mean, I, I, my understanding is they did target Chinook salmon for catch and release, but did not retain, but still the optics of it um, is, it, it, it's not acceptable, and it's very hypocritical. right. Um,
0: and and well, we are going to talk with them on the show tomorrow. And but I can say, uh, like you said, so they uh, the defense of th- that they're saying is that they weren't f- fishing for chinook; they were fishing for coho uh, salmon. Uh, but like you're saying, so you, you're saying it 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 appears that on the one hand, while you put out this campaign, and if you go to the David Suzuki uh, Foundation website, you can see it, and it says uh, what you just said: for orcas' sake, don't hook a chinook this summer. Um, wh- what other concerns do you have though with this kind of? Is it because they're putting the 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 campaign out there in the one hand almost like a a do what i do or do what i say not what i do
4: that's precisely it joe and um it's you know politics have gotten in the way of science to helping endangered chinook salmon and maintaining and sustaining a year-round public fishery for all canadians for chinook salmon Um, you know this has had as we've heard on your show devastated impacts for communities that rely on chinook for both social and economic reasons Um, we had the minister talk on your show and you know, in the belief of many of us, he lied about what was taking place um, that there, there's you know related to the Gillnets in the Fraser River, and that's also another topic. Um, and we couldn't even uh, get an answer from the minister on uh, why hatchery chinook salmon have been closed to retention. BC is experiencing a banner year for chinook salmon in 2019, the best in decades that we've seen in the Salish Sea. Uh, even with the, in you know the amazing numbers of chinook salmon in our local waters um early uh, fraser chinook are experiencing continued challenges, and, and you know public anglers are committed to aiding in the recovery and you know one way is calling out hypocritical actions of foundations like the david suzuki that are not doing right what's right for canadians and chinook they're really just deflecting uh the public's attention from the real issues uh in in uh, you know a fundraising campaign that is you know is disingenuous i would to say for the uh in the least and you know data has shown that the recreational fishery has uh you know very insignificant impacts on early Fraser Chinook and with the management strategies employed in recent years yet um NGOs and specifically the Suzuki Foundation have chosen to scapegoat the public fishery and ignore the major contributions to the decline of you know one stock of Chinook that is isn't concerned. some of the uh seven stocks in the early Fraser Chinook Uh, and we've you know I believe, and I think a lot of people share this belief, it's an, irresponsible that groups like the David Suzuki Foundation are doing this and not focusing rather a media sensationalism campaign rather than focusing on recovery measures and putting pressure on DFO to put a proper recovery plan in place for early Fraser Chinook that involves uh, managing pinnipeds, um, transitioning away from the use of in-river nets, which can't selectively fish, uh, doing strategic uh, hatchery enhancement, uh, recovery of habitat, increased enforcement. Um, so by not doing this, they're just putting a public smear campaign on you know the public fishery.
0: And you use the word scapegoat, and I know we've talked about this in the past. Uh, what kind of a response do you get when you try and get that message out there that recreational anglers are taking less than 1% of this fishery, that if we're talking about saving it and talking about not taking these fish out of the water, recreational anglers isn't the issue?
4: Yeah, and that's exactly it. You know, the data has shown DNA, uh, DFO's own DNA data um, collected through the Avid Angler Program and the Head Recovery Program shows that in, you know, specifically in the Salish Sea, uh, less than 1% of the Chinooks that are caught by recreational anglers are the, the early Fraser stocks of concern. And, you know, more so that recreational anglers are focused on um, growing Chinook populations and, and putting forth strategies. Um, as I talked on your show, uh, when you had the, the minister on, I had mentioned that we'd put a couple of proposals before Minister Wilkinson um, for hatchery enhancement on the stocks of, of, of concern on the Upper Fraser and also looking at ways that we could have openings for recreational fishers that just targeted hatchery-enhanced Chinook salmon, which weren't um, the stocks of concern. Uh, yet, They've it's just, you know, we've been stonewalled. Um, And it's incredibly frustrating. And then when you see this, when Steve Cornish and David Suzuki are going up to a famous fishing lodge in in northern BC, the outpost, it's one of the most uh, sought after places. If anybody was going to choose to go Chinook salmon fishing, it's just, it's, you know, it's really hypocritical. And their their actions speak loudly where, where they really stand.
0: And we also have the issue right now of the Big Bar landslide and uh, Fisheries and Oceans Canada saying that it too uh, presents a clear danger for the at-risk Fraser River Chinook. And I know some anglers have come out saying, wait a minute, that's not even one's not really related to the other because of the time of year that we're at right now. Uh, What do you say about uh, the landslide now also uh, being thrown into this?
4: Well, the landslide is a definite concern. Um, What is also concerning about the landslide is... um, from Google Earth uh, and views, that landslide happened in late last week of October, early November, yet it wasn't dis- discovered until June 21st. Um, definitely, uh, the federal government and the provincial government have been working hard to reduce the obstruction or the the, you know, the ability for fish to migrate past that. They're tr- transporting fish past it. It's important, and it needs to be addressed, but you know, the stocks of concern were already up in that area. Uh, long before it was, you know, certain amount of the schnook stocks of concern were right up in that area before it was discovered, and it really should have been discovered back in October or November. Um, and that's a big question about why it wasn't. This, the Fraser River is one of the largest salmon-producing uh, rivers in the world, and it's incredibly important to British Columbians and all Canadians. And um, it it does sort of point to uh, mismanagement um, by not being aware of this issue further, and the, the government should be monitoring. Uh, the river on a regular basis to make sure that passage for salmon is there. Um, Certainly it could have been addressed a lot better in the fall or um, early spring before high water levels were a problem.
0: All right. And just uh, before I let you go, circling back uh, to uh, your issues, your concerns about the David Suzuki foundation and and with the two members that had gone fishing, have you reached out to the foundation or had any response from them to your concerns uh, about uh, the hypocrisy uh, that you say this is?
4: Well, and not specifically this time, but I can tell you that, um, in the past, um, I had worked with a group, um, that was involved, um, with, uh, they, they putting forward, um, information on how sound, uh, and at the time Suzuki last year in July, the Suzuki foundation or actually in August had called for, um, a closure to, um, Chinook salmon fishing, uh, at that time, along with Raincoast. And um, I raised the issue actually with one of their senior science people, Bill Wareham. And I said, Bill, um, you know, there can be, uh, like they were calling for a blanket wide closure um, on the BC coast. And uh, I, I raised the time because I was participating in these groups. I was a reviewer on the Ocean Watch House Sound edition and also the House Sound. Knowledge Symposium and even some other recreational public fishers uh, participated in this group. And when I raised it to Bill Laram, who's one of their senior science people, saying, Bill, this is pure media sensationalism. There are opportunities in the south coast of British Columbia where uh, public fishers can go out and catch and retain, you know, one, one Chinook salmon without having any impact on other parts of the ecosystem. And I was told at that time, you know, you, you really just have to take this for the cause and you should stick in and... Uh, this is our, our, our fundraising campaign, you know, so it, it was incredibly disappointing to me. And I spoke out about it in a smaller group at that time. Uh, but when this came out and it was discovered that um, their CEO, Steve Cornish and David Suzuki, were out fishing at the outpost, I just found that incredibly uh, hypocritical and uh, scapegoating the public fishery and turning a blind eye to the major factors that are impacting Fraser River Chinook and populations of, of all of British Columbia.
0: All right, Dave, we'll have to leave it there. And we are going to talk to them on the show tomorrow. But thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it.
4: All right. Thanks for having me on, all You right. Have a great weekend and I'll be listening tomorrow.
0: All right. That sounds good. That's Dave Brown, a recreational angler.